Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Let me me just take you inside the mind of Kat for a moment, Um, just so you get to know her a little bit better. She tends to be a little oppositionally defiant from time to time. And Well, let me give you an example. It's a beautiful day here on the lake in Maine. It is gorgeous. And uh, we're getting ready for a barbecue later this afternoon. And Kat was getting set to make some deli salads and pulled out the squeeze bottle of mayonnaise and was reading the side of it. And it said, refrigerate after opening and store on refrigerator door. And that made Kat angry. Well, it's just, I mean, it's really not up to you, Hellman's. I get to decide where things are stored in my refrigerator. It was stored on the refrigerator door, but because the mayonnaise told her no. <laughs> it's on the shelf now. <laughs> yeah, it's on the shelf. She, She's oppositionally defiant no. when it comes to condiments. It's, uh, no, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the door, so that's why it's on the shelf. It's not because... It, it's it is not, a little bit, isn't it? It's a little bit because... I mean... Yeah, you don't want Hellman's bossing you around. You don't get to be the boss of me. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't for deli salad, because you know I don't make those with mayonnaise. I was just organizing because we're getting ready to... Oh, because if okay. we're going to be doing like burgers, then mm, I want to okay. have make sure I have everything that we need. Well done. Thank you. I don't like a mayonnaise salad. I love a mayonnaise salad. I know. It's a mayonnaising. Oh, now she's angry at me. Um. <laughs> that reminds me, I saw a t-shirt uh, being advertised the other day that said, dad jokes? I think you mean rad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of you. Thank you mm. so much. Mm-hmm. Hey, welcome to uh, Jim Harold Campfire listeners. Oh, Thank you so much for joining us. Jim Harold has given us a, a couple of nice endorsements, and uh, we, we appreciate that. And uh, we, you are so welcome here. Also appreciate being able to follow his trip uh, in England uh, via his Instagram page. It's been amazing. Cat, living vicariously through other people's Instagram photos. And meticulous organizer of sandwich spreads. <laughs> I go first. Here we go. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. Today I'm going to talk about... Uh, Lesser known Hollywood scandals. Ooh, 
I love a Hollywood scandal. Joan Crawford. We watched Mommy Dearest uh, a while ago. Yep. And uh, you know, it's a one of those almost a cult status film at the at this point. Yeah, and I hadn't seen it, so it was one of our. Uh, Halloween Oktoberfest Advent calendar movies. Right. You didn't, you, you thought it was more of a slasher film, right? I did. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it would be, but obviously it's it's scary in its own way. For sure. Yeah. Well, jo- Joan Crawford became, before she became a star, she appeared in at least, at least one pornographic film. Oh, really? I did not know. Yep. It was called Velvet Lips. Oh, that's very graphic. <laughs> and uh, according to Ranker, as the story goes, MGM spent years and thousands and thousands of dollars tracking the movie down and destroying it. Wow. Now, she, of course, was one of the biggest stars at MGM. And uh, the people who headed the studio, obviously, they wanted to control the image of their stars. Sure. These were big investments. And that was, you know, that was just that could not get out. And it's so funny because like now that's what makes you a celebrity. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And you don't have to be signed to a studio. You just need an Instagram account. So allegedly MGM's notorious fixer. His name was Eddie Mannix. And you're going to hear his name repeatedly throughout my segment. That is a great name. Eddie Mannix. Mm, Very early Hollywood sounding. It is. And so he was a fixer for the studios. And what that meant was when stuff like this would arise, Mm -hmm. he would um, in any way possible take care of the problem. Right. To buy the film back or to intimidate people to give him the film. So what I guess happened is um, some people did find the film and they contacted the studio and they said, we want $100,000 cash or we're going to release this and ruin the reputation of of your biggest star. The story is that Eddie Mannix was sent out by the studios to fix the situation. Sure. Allegedly, he had mob ties. And so he made them an offer they couldn't refuse, if you'll pardon the expression. Got it. Got he it. said, he said, no, we're not going to give you the $100,000. We're going to give you a choice. We're going to give you $25,000 or I'm going to kill you and take it. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> that's the story. It's not verified, but, sure. but that's the Hollywood lore. Regardless, they got the film, they destroyed it. And when Joan Crawford left MGM in 1943, she paid the studio $50,000, which was really very unusual. That was just not done. And many people, Hollywood historians, believe that uh, she was paying the studio back for acquiring and uh, and destroying the negatives of Got it. Velvet Lips. Velvet Lips. Wow. Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn was a swashbuckling the early Hollywood actor. Yes, yes, exactly. He was best known for his role in those types of films, mostly silent error. Well, yes, silent error films. He starred uh, in pictures like Captain Blood. That's mm-hmm. the one that most people think of. You know, where he's swinging around on a rope on a pirate ship. Uh, he was also he played Robin Hood in like the nineteen twenty ish twenty three or four version of that. Interestingly enough. The guy who played Friar Tuck mm-hmm. in that version of the film, I believe it's that version, was Alan Hale, whose son played the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Oh, okay. Alan Hale Jr. Okay. So anyway, Errol Flynn was, well, he stood trial for statutory rape. He, he was famously quoted as saying, I like my whiskey old and my women young. Well, that's gross. Yeah. He was accused of sleeping with two 
17-year-old girls. I don't know if it was at the same time or not, um, but he denied the charges. He said, no, this was not true. Yeah, but we have, you've said that you like your, your yeah. whiskey old and your, yeah. I mean, so you, okay. He could afford the best attorneys in Hollywood, quite obviously, and uh, they worked hard to turn the jury against the accusers. Not very much unlike what happens today. Sure. So the jury acquitted him. And after uh, after the trial, one of the accusers uh, was quoted as saying, the jury just sat and looked adoringly at him as if he were their son or something. Ugh, gross. And uh, that scandal didn't do anything to stop Flynn's appetite for younger women. During the trial, he met, this was during the trial, he met a 19-year-old uh, who he married. At the time of his death, he was only 50 years old, and he was in the rela- in a relationship with a, a girl who was 15. At what? The time. Yeah. Oh. Errol Flynn, everyone. Not cool. I struggle with that kind of thing because I I wonder like what kind of home life she had because so often people who are predators you know find kids who are don't have a stable home life and uh, sometimes their parents can be talked into allowing situations or you know there's a lot of examples of that and I just always feel like it's that adds to the damage like there's a it's a parfait of fuckery in that child's life and it's awful Errol Flynn was involved in all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, One of his drinking buddies, John Barrymore, also, you know, a huge star, the Barrymore family. Is that Drew Barrymore's? Great grandfather. Someone or other? Yeah, something like that. They were drinking buddies. And when Barrymore died, Errol Flynn and his buddies went and dug up Barrymore's body and took him to the house for one last round. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, again, Weekend weekend at Bernie's. Bernie's. Yeah. Yeah. Which, as we all know, is Rachel's actual favorite movie. Friends reference number one for this episode. 1932, Gene Harlow. Gene Harlow, big movie star. One of the blonde bombshells of the day. Right. Lovely. In 1932, her husband, who was a producer, his name was Paul Byrne, died of an apparent suicide. His body was found. Uh, he He was naked lying in the living room floor with a gun in his hand and a note that said, quote, Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. And then it said, You understand that last night was only a comedy. So they assumed it was, police assumed it was, it was a suicide note. But there were so many things that uh, they, they couldn't make heads or tails out of, like Harlow's refusal to talk about it. Other than to say that uh, she wasn't home at the time, she would she was at her mother's house. Mm-hmm. MGM Harlow's studio moved quickly with a fixer to kind of clean up the situation. They arrived at Harlow's home in the morning, the morning that the body was found, and uh, they say that there is some evidence that something nefarious was happening. Research conducted years later suggests. Byrne most likely did not kill himself. While living in New York, I guess years before meeting Harlow, he was involved with an actress whose name was Dorothy Millett, and uh, he was romantically involved with her. Mm-hmm. And she became his common-law wife. And she, su- she suffered from mental and emotional issues. The story goes that Byrne one day uh, found her in a coma. Uh, doctors said that uh, she would not come out of it. Ten years later... Byrne was with Harlow 
and Millette woke up and then contacted Paul. Sure. So he set a date to uh, to meet with her and sent Gene Harlow away for the evening. This is according to some accounts. Okay. He provoked an argument to get her to leave the house. Byrne supposedly died that same night that he had arranged the uh, meeting with Millette. And then nine days after Byrne died, Millette's body was found in the Sacramento River, which leads uh, researchers to think that she killed Paul Byrne after coming out of the coma. What? Yeah. So, oh. So it's all kinds of weird twists and turns there. Right. Say, I was going the other direction. My brain went to Gene found out that he was going to meet with this a coma chick mm. and then killed him. But I see. Okay. Oh, wow. That's That's weird. And of course, the studio was afraid that Gene Harlow was responsible for it. And so they sent their fixers in and, right. you know, so whatever. Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, two very famous models from the early days of Hollywood. They had a lot in common. They were only four years apart in age. Mm-hmm. They both came from Europe to Hollywood about the same time. Uh, Dietrich came from Germany. Garbo came from Sweden. And both were rumored to be bisexual. And for most of their careers, Garbo and Dietrich denied having ever met one another. But in 1925, at the age of 19, Garbo uh, appeared in a silent German film called The Joyless Street and was supposedly working alongside with uh, Dietrich. She was 23 at the time. And but they consistently denied ever having been in the film together or knowing each other. But Diana McLennan, who is an author and film historian, has extensively studied uh, the surviving footage of the film, as well as the lives of both uh, Garbo and Dietrich. And she says, according to research, Garbo and Dietrich had a torrid love affair while filming The Joyless Street. Aha. The impressionable Garbo fell head over heels for Dietrich who had uh, no intent of involving herself in any sort of a, a lasting uh, relationship with a, with a younger woman. The affair was like a, like a flash of gunpowder. It was bright, and but then quickly faded away and left both actresses, I guess, embittered for life. Aww. Dietrich later confided to a friend, uh, a writer whose name was Sam Taylor, that Garbo was an unintelligent Scandinavian child who wore dirty underwear. Oh, okay. (laughs) That is a very strange diss. You know who George Reeves is? Yes. Played Superman on TV in the 50s. He was found dead from a bullet wound in his his head in uh, 1959. It It had been ruled a suicide, but rumors over the years... I'm sorry, didn't Christopher Reeves play Superman? Like... Yeah. Years later? Yes. It's weird, isn't it? It is weird. I never thought about that. And then Gerard Christopher in The Adventures of Superboy. It gets very confusing. Very much. It's kind of like a Dick York, Dick Sergeant, Sergeant York kind of thing. It is exactly like that. Thank you. <laughs> God, is there any reason I love this woman? <laughs> well, rumors after George Reeves was um, found dead, rumors began to circulate that foul play was involved because it was a well-known fact George Reeves was having an affair with Tori Mannix. Does that name sound familiar? No. Wife of infamous Hollywood fixer Eddie Mannix. Oh, really? Yeah. Why would a fixer's wife have an affair? You got to make better choices. 
Industry insiders say that uh, this really probably wasn't Eddie Mannix's doing because he knew about this affair and he actually approved because he was having an affair with another woman at the oh, time. Sure, sure, sure. And they were both Catholic and they weren't going to get they divorced. They weren't going to get divorced. So they might yeah. as well each right. get theirs. Yep, exactly. I've got my toys, he's got his. But the rumors that Eddie Mannix was involved have not dissipated. In fact, many years after Reeves died, a very elderly and ill Tory Mannix. Uh, told a friend that Eddie had killed George Reeves. Oh, so, okay. So, but, oh, well. So it's unsolved. So we've mentioned Joan Crawford and Jean Harlow, and then there's Judy Garland. Three huge names in cinema in the uh, 30s and 40s. All three of these stars had to take hiatuses from shooting film. In all three situations, the studio reported them to enter the hospital to get some rest. Sure. What was happening is the studio was enforcing that they get abortions. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. If you want to keep your contract, you have to get an abortion. And so they were sending their young stars to hospitals to have abortions performed. And in California right now, abortion is legal, but with limits. So back then, I I doubt very much that would have qualified, even if those laws were in place. But it wasn't just those three women that uh, that I mentioned. A lot of Hollywood stars were either forced by their studio to get abortions or elected to have them on their own. Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Judy Garland, Tallulah Bankhead, uh, Jeanette McDonald, Lana Turner, Dorothy Dainbridge. All of those women had abortions arranged by the studios and often against their wishes. God, that must be terrible to have to decide between the career that that you're hoping to continue with and be successful with and, you know, having to having to end a pregnancy. That's terrible. It's and it what a terrible uh, place, especially for a woman to be put into at that time where, uh, you know, financial independence is not always simple or easy. Abortions became uh, quite common. Uh, back then for the economically and socially independent woman and the era of modern birth control at the time was not um, widely used to quote vanity fair magazine in the 1930s vamp and man-eating thespian Tallulah bankhead got abortions like other women got permanent waves wow that's kind of a glib way to yeah remark on that terrible thing but okay Virtuous singer sensation sensation Jeanette McDonald found herself pregnant. In 1935, MGM studio boss Louis B. Mayer told his studio fixer to get rid of the problem. McDonald soon checked into a hospital with, quote, an ear infection, according to the book The Fixers. That's terrible and very scary as well, because when you consider, like you said, you know, at that time, abortions were not legal. Um, So I'm sure that they had doctors who are performing them. But in the in the 30s, they it typically wasn't a safe procedure. So you're going in for I don't know. It just it, it all makes me feel just awful. And it's all economically motivated. The whole thing is it, with disregard to a person's personal well-being, whether it be physical or emotional. For sure. Here's another example. Judy Garland at the studio at MGM. She was subjected to endless types of abuse, constant harassment. That's I've heard that she was even from a very, very young age, just terribly mistreated. She was. And not just from run of the mill studio executives, but all the way up to Louis B. Mayer. 
He tormented her about her weight. This resulted in, um, in Judy starving herself. Right. She got hooked on diet pills. And we know how her life ended. It wasn't, it wasn't a happy ending for her. She joined the MGM studio. She was only 13 years old. And at the age of 14, the studio told her that she looked like, quote, a fat little pig in pigtails. At age 16, an MGM executive told Garland she was, quote, so fat she looked like a monster. Oh, my gosh. At age 18, Mayer pushed Garland. This is Louis B. Mayer from MGM. Pushed Judy Garland on a diet of black coffee, chicken soup, 80 cigarettes a day, and diet pills every four hours. She lived the rest of her life with an eating disorder and drug addiction. How can you not? I mean, when you're 14, 15, 16, your brain's already telling you those things. Your brain's already telling you you're a monster and you're not good enough and you're not what you need to be. Then you have people reinforcing that. And those are the people that you're so desperately trying to please so that you can work and it's disgusting and makes me very angry and finally clark gable we all know him from uh gone with the wind frankly my dear i don't give a damn he looks very errol flinney yeah he had that little pencil mustache yeah. and very swashbuckling kind of guy for sure a, a man's man you know he was a. I don't know he was portrayed as um a, a womanizer and uh, I don't see how I'm sorry, this is going to be a tangent. I don't see how being a womanizer uh, makes you a man's man. That's just in a term. Way. Yeah, no, I agree. That's just that's an outdated term. It's continually presented to us like, I'm sorry, James Bond. James Bond is not cool. James Bond is gross. James <laughs> Bond is a manipulator and uh, and someone who does not take into account the feelings of other of other people. Yep. That doesn't make him a cool guy. Yeah, but he has a bazooka in his car. Yeah, so I that, mean that does make him that cool. Makes yes, him real you're right. Cool. You're right. <laughs> so so Clark Gable was pushed by the studio as a sex symbol. He they they marketed him as as a um, romantic lead. Mm-hmm. Despite the reputation, Gable allegedly was involved with men too. Mm-hmm. In David Brett's book, Clark Gable, The Tormented Star, the writer alleges that Gable was, quote, gay for pay and traded favors early in his career for career advancement in cash. So he wasn't actually homosexual, but he would... he yeah, would for, for advancement or whatever. Oh, okay. All right. Was that something that the... Uh, I mean... He was doing it for career advancement, so right. obviously people within the, the biz knew about it. Some of them did. It was very early in his career and uh, at a level that he didn't operate anymore. So when he was filming Gone with the Wind, he actually he didn't want to do that movie because the director at the time was somebody that knew about this. Mm-hmm. In fact, it had an experience with Clark Gable. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want to do this because he was afraid the director was going to uh, expose him. Right. Now, that's the rumor. Nobody knows if that's exactly what happened. But what we do You're spreading know. spreading gossip. Here's what did happen. Okay. Halfway through the filming of the uh, movie, he was unceremoniously fired. The director was and replaced with Clark Gable's best friend, Victor Fleming. Okay. So... 
that just kind of added to the uh, sure, sure, sure. I know that the the scandaly like fun part is like, oh well, you know, he kind of took some took some business on the side so mm-hmm. that he could advance his career. But when you think about it, a young person trying to get into a business and then older. Uh, established business people taking advantage of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very rapey. Oh, it is. And so it it sounds tantalizing, uh, but when you look at the like the real logistics of that, it's terrible. It's just terrible. It's very uh, Louis C.K. whipping his dick out. You know, there's that whole right, right. You know, there's young comedians trying to get into the business, and and he's all like. I'm going to expose myself to you. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you even want to talk about that. I don't think anybody wants to talk about Louis C.K.'s dick, really. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's what I have, Hollywood scandals, and hopefully a few that maybe you had not heard of. I hadn't heard of most of those. Right. I will say almost all of them made me angry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much uh, exploitation. Yep. That, 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 I know. That went on and goes on. and uh, Well, you know, you hear a lot about the casting couch. And usually it's it's thought of as young female starlets that are coming up through the industry and being taken advantage of male studio executives. You know, which is not a an old story. It still happens today. Obviously. But clearly it's not just women. It's young men as well, too. Oh, for sure. That's one of the reasons why, like, um, you may be familiar with Terry Crews coming out and talking about having been assaulted by a studio executive. Um, And he is a very large, very strong, very tough guy. Former NFL player. Who, you know, comes out and it's so brave because especially with boys, there's that shame factor. Yep. And uh, so I just, he blows my mind. I'm just, I, I could not heart eyes Terry Crews more. I'm with you on that. He's not only brave and extremely buff, but he's he's a great actor and he's hilarious. For sure, for sure. Anyway. <laughs> Shout out to Terry Crews. <laughs> Hashtag heart eyes Terry Crews. And now, the Box of Oddities brings you that thing in the middle. And now a list of unusual nicknames and or slang terms for genitalia. Number five, clown hole. <laughs> Number four, made popular in the 1890s, cutlass, which is also a type of short sword with a curved blade. <laughs> um... Number three, moose knuckle. All right, yeah, I've heard that. That generally comes from ill-fitting pants. Yes, it does. Number two, Russell, the one-eyed muscle. And the number one weird nickname or slang term for genitalia, whisker biscuit. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. 
Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. The only podcast that once shot a man for snoring too loud and wound up a New York sports writer. This is The Box of Oddities. So we got the idea for that thing in the middle topic from, well, this email that we received. Hello, Kat and Jethro. After hearing Kat's segment on symbiosis, I thought maybe I'd share my own unfortunate experience with an unwelcome and unfortunate symbiotic relationship. Oh, lordy. <laughs> Steal yourself. Here we go. Last summer, I spent a lot of time hiking whenever the weather was nice, and there was a lot of nice nature trails by where I lived. Well, one day I was, um, I was showering after a hike, and I noticed what I felt like a scab on a very sensitive part of my male anatomy it was on the underside where it's kind of impossible to see but it felt like a a piece of skin or a scab or something so i decided to ignore it and uh figure that it would heal itself given time okay flash forward a week later it was still there and starting to bother me so i decided to rip it off it was painful but it finally came loose imagine my surprise when i set it down on the counter and it started crawling away. 
<laughs> Needless to say, I was very upset to realize this thing had been attached to my business for the past week. So that's the story of my dick tick. Oh, <laughs> if there is a moral to this story, it is this. Not to go hiking through tall grass while wearing shorts. And also probably not to ignore strange new bumps on the underside of your private bits. Good, good moral. Good lesson. He then signs off by saying, hope you found the story as funny as all my friends did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the email. Oh, man. Curator at theboxofoddities.com. What you got for me, my love? <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, I'm uh, okay. Yeah. You know, ticks. Yeah, but ticks, yeah. This was actually uh, suggested by a listener, and now I can't find the message. I can't tell if it came in. I can't remember if it came in a Facebook message or if it was an email on Instagram. I don't remember. It's hard to keep track. I, I know. So I do apologize that I cannot give you credit, though I should. Um, but you know who you are, and you're a special flower. <laughs> okay. The Toynbee Tiles. You're doing Toynbee Tiles. I'm doing Toynbee Tiles. I remember this email that came in. Okay. Was it an email? Actually, I think it was a Facebook message. I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so the Toynbee Tiles, I had never heard of. So when I saw this message, I was like, what the fuck? And I looked it up and immediately intrigued. Can't get enough. All right. Okay. Here we go. The Toynbee tiles are messages of unknown origin found embedded in asphalt of streets in about two dozen major cities. In the mid-1980s, pedestrians started to notice these strange anomalies popping up on the surface of asphalt streets and avenues throughout Philadelphia. What year? In the 80s, in the, the 80s. early 80s. Okay. They're um, little plaques with incredibly cryptic messages. Uh, they were appearing overnight, seemingly out of nowhere, in the middle of the streets. They're generally about the size of an American license plate, though sometimes considerably larger. And although the early stages of the tiles varied in color, shape, and text, the most common message appeared to be Toynbee Idea. In Kubrick's 2001, Resurrect Dead on Planet Jupiter. Okay, I'm intrigued. So some of the more elaborate tiles also feature cryptic political statements, or uh, they urged readers to create and install tiles of their own. Toynbee tiles were first photographed in the late 1980s. Their first reference in the media came in 1994 in the Baltimore Sun. In 1983, there was a letter to the Philadelphia Inquirer referenced a uh, Philadelphia-based campaign with themes similar to those mentioned in the tiles. So, resurrecting the dead on Jupiter, uh, Stanley Kubrick, and Arnold J. Toynbee, but didn't actually refer to the tiles. So, that mm. was the early 80s, right around the same time that the tiles were starting to emerge. So, this is part of this campaign. You think, what, we think so, yes. Whatever that is. Right. And the name was Arthur J. Toynbee? Arnold J. Toynbee. Arnold. Okay. And do we know who that is? Yes. Okay. Who is that? I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I'm, no, I'm, it's I'm okay. Just, I'm so excited. I know. I've got questions too. All right. So the tiles themselves. The Let's talk about like how they're made, what they're made of. The material used for making the tiles was initially unknown. Uh, it's not obvious. The 
evidence has emerged that they may be primarily made of layers of linoleum and asphalt crack filling compound. Hmm. The uh, one Toynbee tile enthusiast has claimed that they came across a freshly laid tile one night and was able to examine it. And this is what they wrote. The highlight of my search for answers on this mystery to this mystery occurred one Sunday night this previous winter. I'd gone to my local convenience store for a snack around 4 a.m., noticing nothing unusual. On my way home, I noticed something on the street. Upon closer inspection, I discovered it to be a Toynbee idea tile, freshly placed and only minutes old. Of course, I was beside myself with excitement, and I could now see exactly how and of what materials these tiles are made. This tile, by the way, that was noted, is located on 13th and Arch Street in Philadelphia. The tiles are just that. They're not standard vinyl floor tiles, as some had initially assumed. The letters are cut out of a material with a high rubber content, um, like higher than a standard floor tile. And the inlay letters seem to be made of a less malleable substance. Um, in the case of this tile, it was red and yellow, and the tile itself was secured to the street by folded and layered tar paper glued together. And then the whole thing seemed to be there was like raw tar underneath to attach it to the road. So then as cars would drive over it, um, it forces I see. it into the street. Okay, so so whoever's doing this is not cutting out pieces of asphalt and embedding them they've created a method where traffic does the work for them that's right that's fascinating that's pretty ingenious it's very clever and as more of these tiles have been examined they are made of layers of linoleum and basically um, asphalt crack filling compound crack filling <laughs> in the united states tiles have officially been cited as far west as kansas city missouri as far north as Boston, and as far south as Washington, D.C. Since 2002, very few new tiles considered to be the work of the original artist have appeared outside the Philadelphia area, although one notable sighting appeared in Connecticut in 2006, and one appeared in Edison, New Jersey in 2007. Do they think it's the same artist, or do they think that it's these are copycat Toynbee tiles? Due to the strong similarity and craftsmanship and writing style, the tiles are most likely the work of a single individual. And this has been going on decades. Yeah, for sure. Incredible. Um, presumed copycat tiles have been spotted in Indiana, New York, on the West Coast. But um, there are people who study these and were able to determine, okay, no, this is just, this is a copycat. This is obviously isn't made by the same person. The early assumption was that the tiles may be some sort of like graffiti or some version of street art. But as more and more messages were being passed along via tile, it does seem like there's a very purposeful message and it's been like you said decades since they first appeared and no one has stepped up to take credit for this so it's not like an artist you know who who wants to become famous is right. doing this right. and you know whatever i wonder if there is one singular message that whoever is doing this is trying to get across and they've written it out and it's a paragraph or two 
and they've just taken the words and jumbled them up and placed them on various tiles at different times. And so if you collected all of those words, perhaps you could reassemble what the original message was. I mean, that's a that's an interesting theory. I think that would be tough because most of the tiles say almost exactly the same thing. Oh, damn it. I thought I was onto something. <laughs> Though to date, about 130 tiles have been discovered. So, okay, the, the tile messages. There's, uh, let's just pick out one. There was one in Baltimore and that tile had that same base statement, which most tiles have this same base statement and then maybe some add-ons like little footnotes okay so the base statement is toynbee idea in kubrick's 2001 resurrect dead on planet jupiter okay but this one in baltimore also at the bottom says you must make and glue tiles you as media ussr wow that's cryptic it's super cryptic and uh there are occasionally like one-off tiles that are like paragraphs long there are a couple that really demonstrate a feeling of paranoia and fear Hmm. Um, one tile lays it all out in a rambling diatribe and exclaims that the artist has been followed and assaulted by journalists claiming that the press has gone as far as to hire mafia hitmen to murder him Um, one of the tiles says i secured house with blast doors and fled the country He even pleads to the readers, murder every journalist, I beg of you. Okay, this person, there are some issues there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And we know of 130 of these, but I mean, how many roads have been tarred over since the early 80s? You know, there may be some that have already been covered that we have that we don't even know about. I wonder if like archaeologists centuries from now will find them. Excavating the Beltway in uh, Washington. What this? <laughs> some weirdos, man. That's like every uh, every time I've seen questions about like what would archaeologists think. Yeah, right. um, every scientist I've ever heard responding to those questions always says, "We always just assume it was some sort of weird religious Religion. thing." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they prayed at the Church of the Golden Arches. <laughs> There are even those that reference what appear to be a very special vendetta against John S. Knight, founder of the Knight Ritter newspaper chain that used to own the Inquirer. And a few tiles refer to Knight as a Helian Jew and even a Soviet spy. Wow. Yeah. This is getting weird. It's real weird. Several of these even allude to um, that conspiracy and reference the USSR even after the Soviet Union uh, is not a thing anymore. Wow, is that right? Wow. Very strange. On June 19th, 2013, tiles resembling the Toynbee tiles appeared in streets in Topeka, Kansas, but they, by the next evening, had been removed. And no one knows if they were removed by, like, Topeka officials or if the artist removed them. It's it's unknown. But because they weren't there for very long, it, we couldn't – there there was no way to confirm whether or not they were actually Toynbee tiles, which I think is kind of interesting um, that they would have been removed and, and why. And why. And why. 
Explain yourself. Mm -hmm. So the message alluding to Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001 Space Odyssey, and what most assume Arnold Toynbee. So Arnold Toynbee was a British economic historian, also noted for his social commitment and desire to improve living conditions of the working classes. So in his book, Experiences, he wrote this passage. What I'm sorry, what year was this? What year? Toynbee. Toynbee. Uh, he was born in 1852. Okay. Uh, kicked it in 1883. Um, so his book, Experiences, he wrote, Human nature presents human minds with a puzzle that they have not yet solved and may never succeed in solving for all that we can tell. The dichotomy of a human being into soul and body is not a datum of experience. No one has ever been or ever met a living human soul without a body, someone who accepts, as I myself do, taking it on trust, the present-day scientific account of the universe may find it impossible to believe that a living creature, once dead, can come to life again. But if he did entertain this belief, he would be thinking more scientifically if he thought in the Christian terms of a psychosomatic resurrection than if he thought in the shamanistic terms of a disembodied spirit. So obviously... Wow, that's heavy stuff. Toynbee spoke of resurrection, spoke of this kind of thought. Um, so it makes sense that he would be the one referenced in the Toynbee tiles, if that's right. It, right. Okay. Um, another possible interpretation is that Toynbee refers to the science fiction writer Ray Bradbury's short story, The Toynbee Convector which alludes to Toynbee's idea that in order to survive, humankind must always rush to meet the future and believe in a better world and must always aim far beyond what is practically possible in order to achieve something barely within reach. Okay, so, you know, okay. Reach yeah. for the stars, at least you'll catch the moon or sure. whatever right, the right, right. phrase is. There's also uh, many people pointing to a short story called Jupiter 5 by Arthur C. Clarke, which involves a spaceship named the Arnold Toynbee, which is on a mission to Jupiter. And it contains elements that are very similar to 2001 Space Odyssey. Which he also wrote, of course. So, I mean, it makes... That makes a lot of sense to me. Also, more recently, um, this has been brought into the conversation about the Toynbee tiles. Playwright David Mamet has spoken of his belief that the tiles are an homage to one of his plays and has described it as, quote, the weirdest thing that ever happened. In his 1983 work called 4AM, a radio host based on Larry King, listens to a caller who contends that the movie 2001, based on the writings of Arnold Toynbee, speaks of the plan to reconstitute life on Jupiter. Wow. This is very strange and convoluted. Right? It's hard because so many of these ideas are connected. Like Toynbee is referenced in this book about a spaceship called Toynbee and it's going to Jupiter and the tiles mention Jupiter and Toynbee, but is it mentioning the ship going to Jupiter or is it mentioning the, um, you know, yeah, you know what I mean? Right, now. right. Yeah. How do you connect the dots on that? Right. Speaking of David Mamet, by the way, Go. Spanish prisoner, watch it. You'll love it. Have I seen that? Yeah. I showed it to you one time. Steve Martin. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Kevin Klein. Very enjoyable. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. Also, 
Robert Redford with his little hat. Oh, you're thinking of the, uh, the Sting. Yeah, The Sting. Yeah. That was so much fun. That was a great one. I, I think of those movies as being very connected in my head, maybe sure. because you made me watch both of them. Well, but yeah, and the, just the whole orchestrated con yeah. thing. Yeah. I love a con movie. Yeah, who doesn't? <gasps> Ooh, let's watch a con movie. Okay, sorry, I'm getting real sidetracked. Here we go. In the early 80s, a man identifying himself as a social worker named James Morasco started contacting talk shows and newspapers with his theory of colonizing Jupiter with the dead inhabitants of Earth, claiming that he came across the idea while reading a book by historian Arnold Toynbee. The guy even actually called in to the Larry King show promoting these same ideas. However, it was discovered that that was obviously it's not his name. The guy that they, that was calling into these shows, his name was certainly not James Morasco, and he wasn't a social worker. Though there was a James Morasco who was a social worker in Philadelphia, and his wife was very annoyed at the repeated <laughs> phone calls that they were receiving. I'm sure. In 2001, there's a documentary called Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles, and researchers and Philadelphia resident Justin Doerr uh, became obsessed with the Toynbee mystery, and he sets out with his friends to track down uh, whoever's responsible for the Toynbee Tiles. By the way, I did want to mention that... uh, I got my information about this from uh, damninteresting.com, Theories of Atlantis, the Resurrect Dead Tile Gallery, which is amazing, and I'll share some photos from that. And of course, a Wikipedia. Resurrect Dead, the mystery of the Toynbee tiles. The team begin to, uh, they because it seems as though everything's based in Philadelphia, so they really start searching down the streets, and they find a resident named Severino Berna, and... There are several reasons why they kind of hone in on that guy. And if you're super interested, I would highly recommend watching this documentary because it's really interesting the way they go through this process, even finding things like what they call prototiles in front of this artist's home. Really? Um, and uh, he's a ham radio enthusiast. So that might be how he's, you know, sharing information about and getting information uh, from wherever, whoever that, you know, ham radio people, you know, I want to get into it, even though I think that it's a weird community, but I'm in, I'm in. (laughs) I've always been fascinated with that too. Yeah. You know, the whole subculture and there's so many sub subcultures of ham radio enthusiasts. Yeah. There are people that just get on and talk about eggplant recipes. See, I think that's, it's kind of like old school Facebook groups. Yes, exactly. Yeah, like, I was just going to say that. Were you? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Please say more things like that. No, I can't. You already said them. Um, it would be a waste of time. I don't think that you're saying things is ever a waste oh, of time. you big silly goof. Listen to the timber of that voice. Well, now you're not going to say anything. No, you're embarrassing me now. Oh, sorry. Anyway, my favorite factoid about this particular, let's call him a suspect, that that leads me to believe that they they did solve this mystery is that he drives a car that doesn't have a passenger seat and they believe that that is so that he can put the tiles down on the road through a hole in his car oh my god that's how no one's found him doing it no shit isn't that cool that is so cool <laughs> but it has not been confirmed they still don't know for sure i mean maybe he's just a guy who likes 
you know, not having passengers. I get it. Driving around with a hole in his floor. (laughs) So it is not confirmed who the uh, Toynbee tile artist is, but it certainly is an interesting journey nonetheless. And I would check that out. The Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. I'll be watching that on my tablet in bed tonight. Now, I'd heard of the Toynbee Tiles before we got this email, and I had done just kind of a... uh, a preliminary skimming of it. I had no idea it was this involved, though. Fascinating stuff. They they really are. And the way that they're done, um, which I can see how they're... The lettering, I can see how, like, using a box cutter, cutting out yeah. uh, vinyl. That's why the letters are shaped the way they are. And it looks super creepy. Um, but you, like, I mean, that makes sense. Can't you picture yep. using a box cutter, Absolutely. cutting out vinyl yep. and like, okay, that's why they're shaped that way. And it's, it's real weird. But um, I'll post pictures of some of these and, and you can take a look. But I would, I would check out that documentary for sure. Well, we need to wrap this up because you need to go uh, finish organizing our condiment tray in the refrigerator. <laughs> Don't forget our live shows. We're going to be in Boston, Charlotte, and Nashville, the last week of October, Halloween week. You can get our you can get tickets to the shows at theboxofoddities.com. Thank you so much for hanging out with us um, today and and all the time. We're just we're so grateful that we get to uh, do this with you and that uh, the amazing messages that we get on the daily. It's just it's blowing my mind. And I just I can't tell you enough how thrilled I am to be able to talk about weird shit uh, with people who like weird shit. Yeah, we feel like we know you. It really does feel like a family, doesn't it? It's like a freak family. I love that. I can't remember who first coined that phrase, but uh, somebody had sent a a message saying, we're all a big freak family. Yeah, use my people. Yeah. Box of Oddities will hit your phone again on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. 
You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.